Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please signal by pressing star zero on your telephone keypad. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Cody, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's workshop is a partnership between the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance and Cancer Care, and we are delighted to be partnering with them on, we actually partner with them on all of our oral and head and neck programs, um, cancer programs. Um, and um, uh, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. And you will be hearing later on in the program from the, um, the um, Head and Neck Cancer Alliance um, in terms of all the different resources and services they will have available to you. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Terry Day. Dr. Day is Director, Head and Neck Oncology, Sarah Cannon National Group, Head and Neck Specialist, Sarah Cannon. And Dr. Day will be addressing overview of oral, head, and neck cancer in the context of COVID-19, staging and diagnosing, key questions in making treatment decisions, surgical interventions including plastic and reconstructive surgery, and speech and swallowing rehabilitation. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Day. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. I would like to begin by thanking Cancer Care, as well as our collaborative panelists and the sponsors for this strong commitment to education, uh, especially for our patients, families, and friends that are affected by head and neck cancer. As we've been providing this wonderful multidisciplinary panel for a few years, the world has really changed significantly, but we all realize that head and neck cancer still remains a battleground for patients and families and clinicians, and that is not slowed. However, I think you're going to hear today from myself and others that there are many changes occurring and our future looks brighter than ever for improvements in both outcomes and quality of life. As head and neck cancer patients are living longer and getting functional support like never before. So the topics uh, Dr. Messner just mentioned, I'll go over each of those briefly. We have a limited amount of time, but I hope to really touch on the important points of each one. I'd like to acknowledge some of my co-investigators who contributed some of the research work that is part of my presentation today. That does include Hannah Cornett, who's our speech and language pathologist who cares for head and neck cancer patients, uh, Erica Andrade, and Jamie Russell, who are medical students doing research in head and neck cancer. So I'll start with the overview of head and neck cancer, and I think it's crucial to begin by emphasizing and this is really the important point for all patients, that it's a multidisciplinary uh, treatment uh, focus for head and neck cancer. And you can't just go through head and neck cancer treatment uh, with just a surgeon or just a, a chemotherapy doctor or just a radiation therapy doctor. You really need a team. And that includes many more beyond uh, the physicians. It includes the dentist, speech therapist, nurses, nutritionists, reconstructive surgeons, radiologists, pathologists, endocrinologists, psychologists, and survivorship and palliative care specialists, social workers, and on and on, including clinical trials. And I think you'll see that from this and past and future cancer care, head and neck cancer programs if you look online. So what I'll start with, I'm just going to make it very simple and basic for what is head and neck cancer. And a lot of studies have shown that people think that includes brain cancer. Well, head and neck cancer is not brain cancer. Um, it includes mouth cancers, throat cancers, and voice box cancers. So mouth cancers are also called oral cancers. Throat cancers are called pharyngeal cancers. And voice box cancers are called laryngeal cancers. So these are all different, and I think it's important to understand that a lot of people have heard about HPV 
head and neck cancer, HPV, throat cancer, HPV, oropharyngeal cancer. And this is not the only kind of head and neck cancer. And we also should clarify that of the three main sites that I discussed, we're not going to go into all of the others, but oral cancer or mouth cancer is not the same as oropharyngeal cancer and not the same as throat cancer. They both have the sound oral or oro in their names, but they are not the same cancer. Mouth cancers typically are related to tobacco use, and oropharynx or throat cancers are often related to human papillomavirus. So that's a virus that can be prevented with the vaccine, and same vaccine that many people will get for cervical cancer is indicated for both boys and girls and up to age 45 in the United States. So all of the other head and neck cancers, nasopharynx, melanoma, skin, thyroid, parotid gland, we're not going to cover today. So the next major topic we're going to talk about is cancer diagnosis and staging. So cancer is usually diagnosed after someone is found to have a symptom or sign of a head and neck cancer. So for mouth cancer, that's usually a red or white patch on the tongue or in the mouth that lasts for two weeks or longer. And usually you should see your dentist, oral surgeon, uh, possibly get it examined or biopsied. Now, throat cancer or oropharynx cancer typically is first identified with a lump in the outside of the neck. And since it's most commonly in males, they'll often notice some swelling on one side of their neck when they're shaving. It also can present with sore throat bleeding, earache, trouble swallowing. So keep those in mind. Now, on the, the third uh, type of cancer we talked about is voice box cancer. Usually that's somebody that has a change in their voice that doesn't resolve or hoarseness. And so that should be examined often by an ears, ear, nose, and throat doctor. So during the diagnosis and staging, patients, after they have a sign or symptom, they may undergo a biopsy or a CAT scan to look and see what's going on. Also a full examination of the head and neck region, including the mouth, the throat, and the neck, and also sometimes a scope through the nose to look farther down into the throat. So oftentimes the patient will be given a clinical stage once a cancer is biopsy proven to be cancer and the staging will go through uh, briefly now and a little bit later. But basically, the staging from the American Joint Commission on Cancer is TNM. T as in tumor, N as in nodes or lymph nodes, and M as in metastasis. So usually people will get a TNM stage, and that will have a numerical number after those. So it could be a T1 N0, M0, for example, stage one cancer. So most of the time, the CAT scans, the biopsy, and possibly a PET scan will provide an overall stage for a cancer that's numbered one, two, three, or four. One usually means the earliest, sometimes the smallest, and four usually means the latest or more advanced. And I would like to emphasize that stage four cancer does not connotate a terminal situation or end-of-life situation in most cases. So it just means that the tumor meets certain criteria that makes it a stage four instead of three. So oftentimes we think, oh gosh, it's a stage four cancer. Well, many and most stage four cancers can be treated. So uh, you don't want to think, oh, I don't want to get treatment because it's a stage four. So why do we need a stage for cancers? Well, research over many years has shown that certain treatments will work better for certain stages of cancer. And so thus, knowing the stage of the cancer can help determine what treatment is best to give, give patients the best cure rate. So when patients are diagnosed with cancer, they're often overwhelmed with people and friends and family trying to provide support or telling their story or saying this is what uh, what I would do and looking on the internet and asking what to do. So it's very strenuous, anxiety provoking. And I often recommend that patients sit down and organize their thoughts and get a notebook together and start making some notes and get to their doctor and start asking the questions. 
what is my cancer, where did it start, what is the stage, and what is the type, and write those down. And if it's a head and neck cancer, you often want to ask, I, I really want to see a radiation doctor, and I'd like to see a, a chemotherapy doctor, a medical oncologist, and also like to discuss it with a head and neck surgeon. And most of the head and neck cancer patients also will need a good dentist and speech and swallowing therapist to understand the ramifications of the different types of treatments. So when you're making a treatment decision, some people will say, well, radiation has the same cure rate as surgery, or chemotherapy and radiation has the same cure rate as surgery and radiation. But the side effects can be significantly different and that's where the dentist and the speech therapist come into play and really need to be an integral part of the team as well as nurses and nutritionists and all of the caregivers and, and support team that I discussed earlier. Oftentimes, there will also be a nurse navigator to help the patient and family navigate this complex set of appointments and treatments and consultations uh, that really uh, is sometimes overwhelming, especially if you live a long distance from a head and neck cancer center. Uh, the most important things really is get the advice from your doctors. And one, what's going to be the best cure rate? And then two, what's going to have the least side effects and give the best quality of life if the cure rates are the same? And the team approach is key. And, and I just recommend patients and family members Take notes as you go to all these appointments. Sometimes what one person hears is different from another, and you can refer back to that. So in general, for making treatment decisions, we often talk about stage one and two cancers often only needing one treatment, one type of treatment. So you might be cured with surgery equally to radiation and may not need chemotherapy, may not need immunotherapy. On the other hand, a stage three or four cancer often needs at least two treatments. So that could be chemotherapy combined with radiation therapy, or it could be surgery followed by radiation therapy. And I think it, it, evidence over the past several years has included some new treatments, including immunotherapy, which can now be used in situations where other treatments didn't work or weren't an option. And so these are often recurrent or metastatic cancers. So thankfully, there is now a treatment for patients that have spread of cancer in different parts of the body. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network develops evidence-based guidelines, nccn.org, and people can go to the website and find out the best treatment for a particular cancer if they have the site um, and stage of the cancer. So one final note is that once treatment's are over, scans are usually done to show that the cancer is completely gone and that there's no residual cancer. And if there is a spot, it can be biopsied. One really exciting development now is a liquid biopsy or a blood test for HPV-related DNA that's associated with HPV oropharyngeal cancers. And patients with head and neck cancer should discuss that with their doctors. Next, I'm going to talk about surgery and uh, plastic and reconstructive surgery briefly. Uh, for oral cancer, surgery is the preferred treatment. And typically, patients will have the cancer taken out of their mouth and sometimes the lymph nodes removed from the neck, which is called a neck dissection. And when these are done, oftentimes, if it's part of the tongue, it can be rebuilt so that people can talk and eat and drink again. As far as the HPV throat cancers, then people can get surgery, including robotic or laser surgery, or they can get radiation therapy for the early stage cancers. On the other hand, advanced stage or stage three or four oropharynx cancers often are treated with chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And they, if that's not an option, people can get surgery followed by the radiation therapy. So when you're talking about surgery for head and neck cancer, you wanna talk about the primary site, which basically is where the cancer started, and the lymph nodes. And an important point is that sometimes the lymph nodes are removed even though they're not enlarged to make sure cancer has not spread to those lymph nodes. 
And if it has, the pathologist reads the pathology afterwards and can tell how many lymph nodes had cancer in them. One of the advances over the past few decades has been plastic and reconstructive surgery of the head and neck region. And now people can have parts of their tongue, their voice box, their jawbone removed. And when those are removed, it can be rebuilt basically with a transplant from the same person's body, from the arm or leg or back, and tissue can be connected back to blood vessels in the head and neck region just like a transplant, affording them the ability to learn to talk and eat and drink and swallow again. Finally, I wanted to touch on speech and swallowing rehabilitation. I cannot overemphasize the need for good dental care and speech and swallowing therapy for head and neck cancer patients. And as speech and swallowing function is commonly affected, regardless of the treatment of chemotherapy or radiation or surgery, it's important to get a speech and language pathologist in your care as early as possible with preoperative counseling of exercises, rehabilitation, speaking exercises, swallowing exercises, and this can minimize some of the side effects of radiation therapy or surgery when it relates to talking and swallowing. Patients are typically seen once every two weeks during their radiation therapy by a speech therapist to make sure they are progressing as needed during their treatment and preventing fibrosis and the area in the throat from food sticking and getting stuck and losing that function permanently. So important to have a speech and language pathologist on board for patients with head and neck cancer from the very beginning. So that covers everything. I'm sorry it was so brief on each topic, but important issues. And I want to thank Dr. Mesner and the other panelists once again and uh, for head and neck cancer patients for helping educate other patients in the future. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Um, uh, Day. And I do want to, before, before um, I finish thanking you, I just want to say that there's over 150 participants on today's program. And um, we have a number of international participants from Austria, Canada, India, Indonesia, Lithuania, New Zealand, Nicaragua, Pakistan, and the United Kingdom. So this is really a global call, and it's really a credit to our speakers and to all of you for being on this call. So I want to thank you very much, Dr. Day, for your outstanding presentation. You really have set the stage for today's program and, um, and for all of our participants, both in the U.S. and, and globally as well. So thank you. Um, and um, we will be taking questions later in the call. Um, so I'm now going to introduce our next speaker. And our next speaker is Dr. Christoph Misikowitz. And Dr. Misikowitz is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology, and Medical Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Clinical Director of Research and in Head and Neck, Clinical Director of the Center for Personalized Cancer Therapeutics, CPCT, the Tisch Cancer Institute, Chairman of the Oncology Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. And Dr. Mistikowitz will be addressing new chemotherapy options, concurrent chemotherapy and radiotherapy in the context of COVID-19, the role of clinical trials in the context of COVID-19, managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and guidelines and tips for the care of your teeth, gums, and mouth. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mistikowitz. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm a medical oncologist. Uh, my name is Dr. Kristen Mistikowitz, and I'm going to be covering the topic of uh, head and neck cancer. And first, I want to thank um, all of you, and I want to thank all the patients they decided, because I'm going to be covering the, uh, they decided to participate in clinical trials. And actually today I'm, I see patients in my clinic. It's so encouraging that see patients that I don't know if they would be around if not clinical trials, and I still see them, and I can talk to them, and I see them how they can enjoy life, because they made this, at that time, a risky maybe in their mind decision to try something that's going to be experimental, trying something that hasn't been tested, but trying something that in our mind can be promising. And I don't think so that any treatment that we cover today and we discuss today could have been presented without their participation because whatever we recommend, that means that somebody in the past decided to participate in a clinical trial so we can make those recommendations. 
And seeing this as those patients are still alive in good shape and they can enjoy life, it's very, very encouraging. And I just want to encourage any of you uh, to um, kind of look at this and kind of talk if, if you can be a next candidate for a clinical trial. But now going, you know, to the main topic. So <clears throat> I would say that we can divide, besides kind of in the simplified way, we can divide the head and the cancer in small or local that can be treated with surgery or radiation. So single modality, you need one or the other. And obviously it was discussed uh, just a few minutes before. And then the next stage uh, in the simplified way would be a locally advanced, meaning that the cancer is a little bit bigger, maybe the cancer spread to the lymph nodes, but the cancer has not metastasized to the other organs, meaning there is no distant metastasis or spreads as we call them. And those kind of cancer are treated with three modalities, and sometimes not all of them are required. And those modalities are surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. And in some situations, we need all three. But in some situations, sometimes we're getting into this debate, and that's why it's important to be seen, what we call it in a multidisciplinary fashion, when all of us, surgeons, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, we can discuss what would be the best approach, what would be the best treatment for those patients. Because sometimes we're asking ourselves, what can be done to spur somebody from one of those modalities? And I'm going to give an example. So if I'm going to recommend surgery, can I spur the patient from receiving chemotherapy? So instead of getting three, maybe patient can need just surgery and radiation. Or the other way around. If the patient that I'm going to operate on, he will still or she will still need chemotherapy and radiation, is it worth doing this? And many times patients, they need, need all three. So it varies from case to case and kind of is a, decided on an individual basis, but many times we have to have the access to experts and to the multidisciplinary team in order to formalize the best treatment for our patients. So what is the chemotherapy and radiation? And the chemotherapy and radiation is the modality that is reserved for patients they either underwent the surgery and we still think there is a possibility there is some microscopic cancer left behind, even if it's invisible, or we treat the patient instead of the surgical resection. And the radiation is like a zapping a patient for many weeks, for many days, on average is about five to seven, depending on the HPV status, but it's a consecutive treatment that is done every day uh, and then on top of this, patient is receiving chemotherapy. But the chemotherapy or any agent that is given during the radiation, it serves a different purpose. The purpose of this chemotherapy agent is to make the cancer sensitive to the radiation. So what I say many times to patients, that the chemotherapy makes the cancer sensitive, but actually it's the radiation that kills the cancer. It's just chemotherapy is helping for this treatment to be more effective. And as of now, we have few agents that we can use concurrently with radiation. And we have chemotherapy, and we have some medication. We call them targeted therapy, and those are newer medications that were discovered. And obviously, there is always a question that maybe the newer is better than the old one. And actually, it was studied, and it looks like that the chemotherapy, even though it was discovered many years ago, it seems to be more effective than targeted therapy. And I'm mentioning this because as of now, immunotherapy is not FDA approved to be used concurrently with radiation, but there are many studies kind of testing this idea and seeing if it's worth adding immunotherapy to the chemotherapy or it's worth replacing chemotherapy with immunotherapy because it's less toxic. And obviously, we want to make sure as we're going to do this, we're not going to compromise patients' prognosis because we want to replace one agent for the other knowing that it's not going to work towards the patient's benefit. But in order to find out, we have to test this idea, and that's why we need your participation in clinical trials. And what is immunotherapy? And I'm going to use the metaphoric explanation, and it's going to be very simplified to kind of explain this. So many times what I tell my patients, 
that when it comes to the cancer, the human body is being tricked by the cancer, and the human body does not know that you have a cancer, and your body is doing nothing, which is different, for example, when you catch infection. Your body will know, your body will react, you're going to develop the fever, and you're going to fight with this infection. So if your body is not fighting with the cancer, it's just kind of doing nothing. So we have to stimulate the human body for this fight. So what I say that with those immunotherapy, if you can imagine, let's say, having now 100 soldiers and they cannot find the cancer, maybe we should create more soldiers. And it's very metaphoric explanation. And if one of those soldiers is going to find the cancer, he's going to call the rest of the soldiers, come here, I found the cancer, and let's fight. So basically, by giving immunotherapy, you are stimulating your own body to fight with the cancer. And the benefit of this treatment is it's not as toxic, it has minimal side effects, and it's pretty effective. So I think, and we're hoping that obviously we're going to be able to incorporate immunotherapy into the current treatment that we have, but as of now, immunotherapy is not FDA approved, so it cannot be given unless you're going to participate in a clinical trial. And I strongly encourage you to do so. So as of now, immunotherapy is being tested to be used in the pre-surgical settings. Can we shrink the cancer and make the cancer resectable? You can imagine if somebody has a large cancer that the surgeon cannot remove, maybe we can shrink it with immunotherapy. Or maybe we can give it during the chemotherapy or maybe sometimes after. So some of those ideas were tested and proven to be effective in other cancer, like lung cancer, and we're hoping that we're going to be able to prove that we're going to see the same patterns that we can use immunotherapy in head and neck cancer, but we cannot do it without your participation. So as of now, locally advanced cancer is treated with surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation, or sometimes the combination of all above treatments. And immunotherapy, as of now, is not FDA approved, but we're hoping that we're going to find the answers of those studies and realize and find out if immunotherapy can be used in locally advanced settings. So let's now move to metastatic disease. So metastatic disease is the one that the cancer travels from the original site to the dis distant organ. So the head and the cancer travel to the bones, the head and the cancer can travel to the lungs, can travel to, to the liver, to the distant organs. And when it happens, the surgery most of the time is not the treatment modality that we use. Radiation sometimes is used, but I'm not going to comment because it's used in the specific situations. But most of the time in a situation like this, we use what we call as a systemic treatment, meaning that this treatment will travel throughout your body and will kill or shrink or address the cancer no matter what it is. So those medications most of the time are given intravenously. And actually, immunotherapy plays a major role in the treatment of recurrent metastatic head and neck cancer. And we do use it. And uh, the benefit of this treatment is it's minimally toxic, many times can be used as immunotherapy alone. There is no other agent needed to be given with immunotherapy. But sometimes there are some unique situations that chemotherapy has to be added in order to increase the effectiveness of immunotherapy. And many times we have to do it. And obviously there's always a third option to participate in clinical trial. And I have to say that many clinical trials as of now, they use different forms of immunotherapy. Sometimes can be immunotherapy that is already approved, but there is a second immunotherapy agent that can be added to the immunotherapy. And for example, in head and neck cancer, when the cancer is invisible to your body, we can make it visible by giving vaccine, therapeutic vaccine. This is one of the modalities. The second immunotherapy agent that can be used when we change the microenvironment. And the metaphoric explanation that I use, what does it mean when we change the microenvironment? If you're going to imagine that the immunotherapy is like a boxer and it's trying to the, the punch the opponent, but you cannot reach it with your arms, so the opponent has to get closer. But if the microenvironment, meaning it doesn't allow you to get closer, then obviously this treatment is not going to be effective. So those other immunotherapy agents, we can change the microenvironment 
And as this treatment gets closer to the cancer and be effective, then obviously we hope that this treatment obviously is going to translate to the better prognosis. But again, as of now, we have only two immunotherapy agents that are FDA approved in head and neck cancer, and there are tons of other ones that are being tested in clinical trials. And some of them, they look absolutely promising, and I would encourage you to, to participate in those trials, and I know it's a difficult decision. So now let's talk about COVID and side effects and how to deal with it. So I would say that with COVID, obviously, the question many times becomes if the patient can get a vaccine or if the patient can get a booster during the treatment. And sometimes we don't have a clear answer, but sometimes we have those concerns because radiation or maybe chemotherapy can be immunosuppressive, meaning they're going to suppress your immune system from developing the response to the vaccine. So sometimes we have to put it on halt, and we have to kind of date it uh, in a way that maybe those vaccines are going to be given after you're going to finish the treatment or maybe prior to treatment. But it's very, very individual, and I would encourage you to speak to your medical oncologist or your primary physician because I'm sure they can orchestrate it in a way that you're going to get, a, you're going to get the benefits from both, from the anti-cancer treatment and from the COVID vaccine. And the last one about the side effects. Obviously, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, or even immunotherapy all can give you some side effects. And obviously, uh, it varies from the patient to patient, but I think most of the time they can be addressed by your medical oncologist or doctors. On many institutions, they have supportive oncology teams. So I would encourage you to obviously report them to your physician because the worst thing you can do is keep it to yourself and you can hurt yourself. So I think you have to be very honest because depending how bad it is and where it is and what exactly happens, it can be easily addressed before it's going to have some detrimental effect on your health or body. So in the summary, I'm going to say, and I'm about to see a couple of patients today, and some of them, they participated in clinical trials. And it's such an amazing moment when you kind of hug them and you kind of feel so well about what you do. And we cannot do it without your participation. It's not just us physicians who are getting the glory. You are a critical component of this, and you can be part of this journey, and I want to thank you for this. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Misiklis. That was really a wonderful presentation, really outstanding. And um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Thank you. And the next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, author and researcher in oncology. Uh, Dr. Fleischman will be addressing the importance of communicating with your healthcare team, key questions to ask, um, about your quality of life concerns, the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, making lists of your questions, and discussion of open notes, and the benefits of inviting a family member, partner, or caregiver to join you on telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you to all of you who have uh, signed on to the call and are participating on the telephone or online. It is a very complex uh, issue that we're uh, speaking about today. As you've heard so far, head and neck cancers um, are, are handled differently depending upon where, what part of the head and neck they appear, and um, that that some of these concepts may be very difficult to uh, picture in your head on, just on the phone call, but um, at least we're trying to give you the initial information because uh, a lot of information needs to go back and forth between uh, patients and families and the providers on the interdisciplinary team. Um, many patients are often surprised to find out that a dentist is on our interdisciplinary team for head and neck cancers. But because treatment may actually affect the teeth and the gums, it's really important to get the dentist uh, to be involved as well. So the, the team is even bigger than most people realize at first. Uh, the communication really needs to be a, very much a, a two-way um, two process. 
uh, most patients will have questions about their quality of life and what effect the cancer itself or the treatment will have on the kinds of things that we rely on our mouths and faces and necks for, including what, what will I look like? Um, will the treatment uh, alter the way I look? Will it affect my breathing? Will it affect my ability to speak? Is that going to be a, a temporary thing or will that be longer lasting? Will it affect my swallowing? Again, uh, a temporary thing during treatment or after, which is why our previous speakers emphasized so much the importance of a rehab or prehab uh, involved in treatments of head and neck cancers. Um, and, and patients are always, as, we, as all of us are, will, are concerned about how the treatment will affect appearance. And um, these are things that need to be addressed up front. Ask all these questions. It's really important to understand exactly what is planned as far as your treatment goes. Um, you may be asked questions that are somewhat embarrassing or very personal or very sensitive. So please be prepared that for certain types of head and neck cancers, um, we really need to know a lot of personal information uh, from you. And, and again, um, the, some of these things are rather private, but it's very important in head and neck cancer, including exactly uh, what your tobacco use is, if you're um, not only smoking tobacco, but chewing tobacco, or um, just putting tobacco in your mouth. That's an important thing that your providers will need to know. If you're vaping um, any substances, um, it's important, even if it's not tobacco products, it's just a flavored product, the burning process um, in the pen may actually affect your mouth and your tongue and your throat, and it's really important that your providers need to know that. And that includes cannabis products um, especially, um, but it, it's not the product itself, it's the process of vaping that can actually be uh, an important factor to, to share. Any recreational drugs that you've used, very important to know. Um, if uh, you've been on opioids before, earlier in life, even though you're not using opioids uh, regularly, uh, please share that with your providers. If you're using opioids regularly especially, but if you've been on them before, uh, they may need that information to, to be able to adjust the doses should you need pain medicines uh, throughout your treatment. Uh, also, a real honest in estimate of how much alcohol and how many alcoholic beverages you use, whether they're wine or beer or hard liquor, really important to know the regular use and uh, please avoid saying that you're a social drinker because some social drinkers um, view of a certain amounts of alcohol is very different than others so you need to be specific uh, in ounces um, or milliliters very important that the team understands this and be prepared that they're you're asked about that what also is um, pertinent to many head and neck cancers is um, any kind of sexual contact you've had with the mouth uh, of any type uh, because of the connection to the human papillomavirus. So if you're asked about this, please don't be surprised. Um, and if uh, you, you feel like you can be real honest with your team, please bring this up. Um, as uh, we're moving through the uh, the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Many of our visits are now on telehealth. Obviously not all of them are, but this is a new experience for many of us. And um, it's a, there are things that you can do to make this as effective and as easy on you as possible. If you're having a telehealth visit with the, for the first time, think about a number of practical things. Where to set up that's a quiet, private place, making sure that your device is charged. You may be on a regular telephone, in which case charging isn't important unless it's a uh, cordless phone, but um, you may be on a cell phone, you may be on a computer, you may be on a tablet. Um, you're at the office of the provider uh, initiating the telehealth visit with you will really need to explain exactly what type of device you need to, to use. Uh, sometimes regular telephones are um, more than adequate. Other times the video connection is vital and that will be a discussion between you and your provider's office. Um, think about um, who you'd like to be on the call with you. 
this is one of the unusual, um, perhaps good things that have, has happened through the COVID-19 era in that uh, somebody who, a family member or friends who you trust can actually join the call without being in the room with you, without even being in the same place as long as they have an internet connection and you authorize them to be on. They can also uh, speak with you in advance, help you make a list of questions, take notes as if they were in the room with you, and actually check off the questions that you have to make sure that all of them are answered. It can be very, very helpful. So having a list of questions in advance can also be very helpful on a telehealth call. Um, the, um, the use of a tablet or a computer or a smartphone, sometimes the providers, or most of the time, the provider's office will be using this on one of their systems that may be connected to their medical records system uh, called a platform. And please be sure that they give you instructions about how to connect. Will they be calling you? At how many minutes before the, uh, the scheduled appointment time? What do you need to do? Do you have to have a special software on your device, or is that something that's not necessary? Uh, if it's your first telehealth visit, it may be a good idea uh, uh, to suggest, or the provider's office would probably suggest that a day, the day before when they confirm the appointment time, they will actually do a dry run to make sure that you know how to connect to them and they know how to connect to you. It's extremely helpful before having a telehealth visit for the first time in, in a provider's office. Um, in addition to that, uh, many of these platforms also will allow you access to your some of your uh, in, uh, clinical information, some of the medical information that is in your medical chart. This is a very good thing. Saves a lot of time and effort in having to call for results or pick up copies of reports, but is an extremely challenging situation because looking at the list of results on a blood test lab or urine test or biopsy reports or reports on, on um, x-rays, CAT scans, MRIs can be especially daunting for those of us who do not have the medical training to understand. There's a lot of medical uh, jargon um, uh, that's used in these uh, reports that you may not be familiar with, and it is very easy to come away with the wrong idea of uh, the interpretation of this. So it is really important for you not to just read these on your own, but to have some time with your provider's office be it um, one of the members of the multidisciplinary team, often um, an a, a oncology nurse or a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant or someone in the office who is trained to help go through these, pro these reports with you to make sure that you understand the context. Because, for example, um, most of the reports in lab of of lab tests will give a, an acceptable range. During cancer treatment, some of these are expected to be in an abnormal range, either too high or too low. Um, and it would be uh, something that needs to be looked into if it wasn't in the expected abnormal range. But that's the kind of context that the providers really need to help you understand because you could clearly jump to the wrong conclusion. Um, some chart notes may be accessible uh, on these systems, and it's really important to understand that we don't just sit down and type a lot of the information in. Some of these are in drop-down pre-selected um, pre choices that we make and the language is also filled with medical terminology and jargon and things that we've taken for granted in years, uh, even back to when we wrote notes with a pen and a piece of paper, which very few of us uh, do anymore. So for example, um, a number of weeks ago, I heard about this and it's rather striking that um, in one of the notes, there was a note about a patient being SOB, which can be a not the polite thing to say, in, in, especially in American English. And it really means shortness of breath. There are a number of different um, uh, different uh, abbreviations or 
um, technical terms, that can be misinterpreted. So please read these with the help of a provider's office to be so you can ask questions and interpret them in the right way. So there's a lot of information that goes back and forth between patients and providers. It's been uh, changed in the time with um, telehealth a little bit, but the basic principles are the same. Uh, I will, uh, that's the end of the topics that Dr. Messner asked me to discuss, and I will turn the uh, call back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really outstanding and really a lot of wonderful information for our participants. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you. Thanks so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. And Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bearden will be addressing nutritional and nutritional concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. So nutrition and hydration are essential, uh, not only in the tolerance to treatment, but also um, in your quality of life. So your diet might be modified um, even before you start treatment, during your treatment, and maybe even after your treatment. Um, we've heard today about a number of different sites that um, cancer can occur in the head and neck region along with several different types of treatment. So um, each patient really is an individual, and recognizing that each person's going to have their own course of treatment um, really lends itself to encouraging you all to please connect with your healthcare team. Um, know your dietitian, know your speech pathologist, know your physicians and healthcare support, nurses and nurse practitioners, people who you can reach out to. Um, I always encourage patients to tell us as soon as something changes, not later. We want to help you um, as quickly as possible um, with any side effects that you're experiencing. Now, some side effects you might experience, again, not everyone will have the same course, but things like um, maybe a loss of taste or just a change in taste, dry mouth, maybe a poor appetite, nausea, vomiting, thick saliva, sore mouth, um, maybe difficulty chewing as some of the treatments do require dental extractions, um, maybe pain with swallowing or difficulty swallowing, and potentially weight loss. Um, each person responds differently to treatment. Um, so it, it even makes it more important that you communicate with your healthcare team. Um, the dietitian um, on your team is here to support you, um, not only with giving you direction on maybe modifications with diet, but maybe even um, answering some questions that come along the way um, related to your side effect management. Um, some patients, um, there may be a conversation about something called a feeding tube that, that may be recommended to be placed. Now, a feeding tube um, may be a short-term intervention or it could be a long-term intervention, just depending on what your needs are. But I always tell patients to look at it as part of the treatment plan. If you are not nourishing yourself and hydrating yourself, you're not going to do well with treatment. And where the region that we're discussing, the cancer um, the cancer region that we're discussing, that's our portals that bringing food and nourishment into our body. So it's important to kind of see that intervention as part of the course of treatment. Um, another thing that I like to talk about with patients is weight loss. Um, a lot of times patients come in and they feel like, oh, I have weight to lose. And when you're going through cancer treatment, it's a little bit different. Um, you can have some weight loss, but it's the rate of weight loss and based and also your intervention for treatment. So know what your goals and needs are um, with your healthcare team. Um, Another thing is hydration. And hydration oftentimes can get swept under the rug. We're talking so much about eating and getting calories in. But hydration is essential. And many of the treatments actually can increase your hydration needs. Um, hydration is getting in enough fluid throughout the day. And fluids that are hydrating are things like water, maybe a sports drink, milk, fruit juice. Um, and so knowing what your needs are, again, are very, very important. Now, side effects, I know were pretty broad that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, and 
there are some things that you can do um, just to help with some of those in the oral cavity, for example, um, by keeping your mouth clean. If you're able to brush your teeth, use a soft brush um, and clean your mouth and your tongue, um, even maybe before or after meals and before bedtime. So a soft bristle brush is what we would recommend. Um, maybe even a, a mouth rinse. And remember, if you're having a sore mouth, you want to be careful of things like salt. So this mouthwash might just be a baking soda and water mix. Um, this mix can also help if you're having taste changes. This rinse can also help if you're having taste changes to help kind of neutralize your mouth. Um, and a, a suggested recipe is about three quarters teaspoon, excuse me, one teaspoon of baking soda and one quart of water. Um, but talk with your healthcare team about what might be best for you and what you're needing. We discourage mouthwashes that contain alcohol. It can be irritating and drying to your oral cavity, and it can cause more soreness if you have issues with mouth sores. And things like drinking alcohol and smoking can actually aggravate your oral cavity as well and your throat. So we discourage um, from partaking in those um, while you're undergoing treatment. So as a general rule of thumb as we talk about hydration, each patient generally needs between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. But like I mentioned, based on your treatment plan, things like radiation, et cetera, can actually increase your hydration needs, so talking with your healthcare team. Um, if you're struggling with swallowing, um, and we've already heard the intervention of the speech-language pathologist is really throughout your care of treatment um, for head and neck cancer, but if you notice changes along the way, be sure to reach out to them. Um, I personally work very closely with a speech pathologist at my institution. Um, they will check patients throughout their course of treatment based on what their unique needs are and what they're experiencing, and we work hand-in-hand. -hand. So it's very important that, um, that you follow the recommendations that the speech pathologist gives you for safe swallowing if, if those are provided, along with stretching exercises and, and things like that. So in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team, and we're all dedicated to um, supporting you during your journey. Um, please know how to reach all of us, and feel free to connect with us as soon as possible when you're going through the treatment so we can help you as quickly as we can. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Diana. That was wonderful, just um, excellent. And um, um, so, thank you, thank you so much. Um, and um, our next, um, our next speaker is um, Amanda Hollinger, and um, Amanda is the executive director of the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance, and she'll be addressing the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance's free programs and services. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague. Ms. Hollinger. Hello, um, this is Amanda Hollinger. I'm Executive Director of the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance, and I really appreciate the opportunity to partner with Cancer Care today, and I also greatly appreciate the insights that have been offered by all the previous guests earlier. So I just wanted to share with you briefly a little bit more about our organization and how you can be involved. The Head and Neck Cancer Alliance is a nonprofit patient advocacy organization, and we focus on prevention, on support for patients, survivors, and caregivers, and survivorship. Among our programs are a peer-to-peer -peer support program that matches patients, survivors, or caregivers with mentors that have gone through similar experiences with treatment. We also have an ambassador program where survivors or caregivers can share their stories and act as advocates in their communities and beyond. In addition, we have an online support community, and that has more than 11,000 active members. We also host webinars throughout the year with a special focus on survivorship topics. So some of the topics we've covered recently are stretching and exercise, lymphedema or swelling, intimacy concerns, uh, smoking sensation, and things like that. We also have a clinical trial finder. I know that was discussed earlier in some detail. And this is on our website, and patients can enter in their specific diagnosis information, their location preferences, and hit view matches and see where they match with trials that might benefit them. And then on the prevention side, we host the Oral Head and Neck Cancer Awareness Week program. 
which involves hundreds of sites across the country that, that participate in free screening events to help get the word out about signs and symptoms, risk factors, and prevention. Our website also hosts a great deal of educational information that we are frequently updating. So for more information about any of these programs, to get involved as a volunteer, to make a donation, to refer a patient, please reach out to us at info at headandneck.org, or you can find out more um, on our website, which is www.headandneck.org. And again, thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit more with you today, and um, I've enjoyed being a part of the program. And I'll turn it back to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Hollinger. That was wonderful. And a wonderful resource for everybody on the call today. So thank you so much. And now I'm going to ask Cody to bring all of our speakers on board. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So um, uh, Cody, if you could explain to the audience how to queue up and ask online questions. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. If you'd like to ask a question, please save them by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. A voice prompt on your phone line will indicate once your line has been opened. At that point, please state your first name and last initial before posing your question. Again, please press star 1 to ask a question over the phones. You may also ask a question via the web by typing in your question in the Ask a Question box and click Send. Excellent. And we've quite a few online questions. Um, um, so, um, So for Dr. Misikowitz, I'm interested in immunotherapy alternatives. Are there any being tested? Are there any being used? Sure. So, so, so a few, few things that I'm going to mention. So this, kind of, this question has two pieces. The first question is, if I have certain stage of the cancer, can I get immunotherapy? And right now we have two commercially available medications that are FDA approved that I can prescribe, but for example, none of them is approved in local or lucky advanced. So if somebody is interested with the local or lucky advanced cancer of receiving immunotherapy in any form, the only way to get it is through a clinical trials, and the clinicaltrials.gov or any kind of website should be able to give you the answer. If somebody has a recovered metastatic disease, yes, we can treat those patients with immunotherapy, and as I mentioned, sometimes immunotherapy alone or immunotherapy with chemotherapy. But when I say immunotherapy alone, again, we use one medication, one agent. And if this person is interested in receiving a stronger immunotherapy or different immunotherapy, the only way to receive it is through a clinical trial. So that would be my answer. Awesome. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Day. I wear an arbitrator. If I have to be hospitalized for COVID and put on a, on a ventilator, arbitrator in or out, any oral hygiene for, say, four months? you could address this, Dr. today in a general way and explain to people what an arbitrator is? Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, an arbitrator is made by a maxillofacial prosthodontist, uh, an integral part of our team, and uh, usually from a dental background, and they make the artificial palates, teeth. Uh, they can make noses, eyes, ears for people that um, with the... Uh, prosthetic would be better than surgical reconstruction. An obturator typically replaces the palate so that there's not a hole through the nose and sinus. Uh, related to the COVID question, I can't say that I'm an expert on COVID or intubation, but typically anybody that is in an ICU setting with an obturator and requires ventilator assistance they will often uh, take the obturator out. However, um, not all clinicians and physicians will know there's an obturator unless they're informed of that. So um, sometimes it's important to carry a card with you saying that you have an artificial palate called an obturator uh, that may need to be removed at some point. Uh, let me know if that doesn't answer the question. Oh, thank you. 
And what about the oral hygiene for four months? I'm not quite sure what that. Any oral hygiene for say four months is that? Yeah, that um, I'm not sure of the details of the question and uh, to give a, an appropriate answer. If if you could send more details, I'm happy to answer that offline through Cancer Care as well okay. in the okay. future. But oral hygiene with an obturator and in patients with head and neck cancer is crucial uh, to having functional. Uh, recovery of the oral cavity and dentition and jawbone. And then this question uh, for Dr. Masek was, have you seen squamous cell um, cancer in the left inner ear canal? In the ear canal, yes, it can happen. It can happen. Uh, it's the treatment modalities are very similar to the one that you mentioned. Uh, it can be surgery, radiation, or chemotherapy and radiation, depending on the stage. But yes, we have seen it. I have seen it. Okay, thank you. Um, and for Dr. Day, um, could you address care of the mouth and teeth um, uh, uh, for patients um, with head and neck cancer, or who would take who who could address that best with them, and who could they ask on the team about this? Yes, I, I can um, briefly address this. I think it's important uh, to make sure that the dentist or maxillofacial prosthodontist or an oral medicine specialist is involved in your care, and they should be involved throughout the five years of your follow-up after cancer treatment. But also, like we talked about for speech and language pathologists, they should be involved in the care prior to any chemotherapy or radiation or surgery. But uh, people that are getting radiation will often have fluoride treatments or fluoride carriers made uh, to wear in their mouth and protect their teeth. But um, for the specifics, it'll depend on the individual, and I would uh, defer that back to the dentist involved in your care. And there's a question, and this I'm going to open up to the entire panel, um, whoever would like to address this question. Any advice on getting dental care covered because it is due to the cancer treatment problem? So any advice on getting dental care covered because it is due to the cancer treatment surgery problem? We do confront that, uh, Carolyn, uh, very commonly because often dental insurance is separate from medical insurance and uh, the cancer component is also very unique in somebody's uh, insurance policy. And so um, oftentimes in my practice, our uh, dentists and maxillofacial prosthodontists um, we'll have to uh, work with the dental insurance companies um, and or Medicare or Medicaid um, to discuss the relationship of the dental problems to the cancer treatment. Um, so I think it's going to have to be individualized again, I'm sorry, but um, it, it uh, will differ by, by state and insurance company as well. And I also would recommend that people would call the um, Head and Neck Cancer Alliance and Cancer Care as well um, for um, resources and help with that because that's really um, very important. Um, that both um, organizations offer supportive services and um, offer, and at the end of this program, uh, while she t um, tomorrow you'll be getting a um, sort of a monkey evaluation. It will include an evaluation, but also will include um, any resource that we mentioned during the program and links to both um, the um, Head and Neck Cancer Alliance and Cancer Care. So you'll be hearing about all of the services that both organizations offer. And we do offer, we, are, we do help to people to, with our case management services and our social work services at Cancer Care help people to, to connect and get that information that they need. So just so that you know that. Um, and. Um, so the question for Dr. Day, when is Head and Neck Cancer Screening Week? Thank you for the question. I'll um, defer that to Amanda, mm -hmm. who organized um, this uh, past April and probably has the dates uh, for next year. Okay. Amanda, when, 
That's a great question. So it is always um, an, an event that takes place in April. Um, and we participate in things throughout the month of April, but the week itself changes. So we have not yet set the dates for 2023, but those should be out very soon. Excellent. Okay. Well, then we'll, we'll stay tuned and also we'll visit, you'll visit the website so you'll be able to see when that's out there. Um, and a that's question. Right. And we have for, an e newsletter too that will announce that if anyone wants to sign up. Excellent. Fantastic. Um, so, um, for Dr. Day, can trigeminal neuralgia be related to having radical neck dissection several years ago? So that's, uh, that's an important and, and very good question. Uh, trigeminal neuralgia um, can be diagnosed a number of different ways, and the trigeminal nerve, for those um, who aren't aware of the anatomy, uh, has branches that go all through the head and neck region, and it provides sensation and muscle activity, among other things. Um, and I would sometimes caution people about a diagnosis of trigeminal neuralgia if they have a history of head and neck cancer, because sometimes head and neck cancers have what's called perineural invasion, and the cancer... Uh, can get into nerves and cause symptoms that mimic uh, trigeminal neuralgia. So I would recommend following up very closely with your medical team and uh, the confirmation of uh, trigeminal neuralgia uh, versus cancer sometimes requires uh, uh, subsequent examinations, an MRI and or a PET scan uh, to clarify which one it is. I have not, to answer your question specifically, I have not personally seen trigeminal neuralgia directly from a neck dissection. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. This has been an amazing program. And we actually um, have, um, so, well, I want to thank our participants for asking such great questions. I also want to ask our, uh, thank our speakers for actually addressing these questions in such a helpful way. Um, but I do want to address the fact that we have many more questions in queue. And so um, in, in wrapping up today's program, when we did run over, suddenly so we could take all your questions, so some of them anyway. Um, for those of you who got to ask a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who are thinking of a question to ask, we ask you to go back to your treating healthcare team and ask your healthcare team um, the questions. Even if you asked a question today, take the information that you've learned today back to treating healthcare team and see how it applies to you in your particular situation. Because as you can tell, our speakers aren't able to address, of course, your all the. Um, they don't know. Um, our speakers do not have access to your medical records or your medical history, and so um, they're addressing your question in a general way. Um, also, um, I do want to. I would not want any one of you to leave this call today feeling it alone. You're now part of a community of support, which includes your healthcare team, um, which includes um, the, um, the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance and Cancer Care and many other organizations. You'll be getting those links in the, um, the SurveyMonkey after today's program. Also, it is tempting at times to feel alone. It's normal to feel alone sometimes, clearly not just because of cancer, but also because of the COVID environment that we live in to some extent. And so um, please know that there are many people that are simply a phone call away or a computer click away from connecting with them. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.